the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. By this point in time in Luke, Jesus has been condemned to death by Pilate and Even though Pilate wanted to release him, even though Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, the hour of darkness, the jurisdiction of evil that Jesus talked about, he said, this is your hour, the hour of self, it has prevailed, or has it? An interesting thing about God is that as awful as we can be, it can never diminish him. The regular season comes to a close today, and the best player in baseball, arguably, Mike Trout, is not going to be in the postseason. His team, probably if it's constructed the way it is right now, will never be in the postseason. And there's a sense where you think of him, most people don't think of him as the best player out there. You think of other guys who are in the playoffs regularly, other guys who are in the World Series, and you think of those guys. And, and so here's this guy who's got world's talent, he does everything well, but he's on this bad team, if you're an Angels fan, sorry. And so he's diminished in that sense. God isn't like that. It's not like, you know, God goes, yeah, Will's on my team, so I'm never making the playoffs. That's not it. I don't diminish him. We could never diminish him because he is who he is. So even though the hour of self has had its way, the jurisdiction of evil has had its way, God is still God. And what's interesting is that millennia earlier, in a similar ugly situation, Israel's just built the golden calf, worshipped it, while God is telling Moses how they can have a relationship with him and draw close to him. And Moses comes down the mountain, and God's ready to wipe him out. And through all that situation, that's when Moses prays and says, God, show me your glory. Into that similar ugly situation where Moses asked to see God's glory, it wasn't possible back then, not in the way Moses wanted. But now... God has taken on flesh. It was possible. And so into this ugly situation of man's hour, man's selfishness, we finally get the full answer to Moses' request. Verse 26, chapter 23. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one, Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. For then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, What shall be done in the dry? And there are also two others, male factors, led with him to be put to death. We are here now on the Via Della Rosa, the road that Jesus had to walk, carry his cross to the execution place, Calvary. We'll stop here. We will get to verse 33 through 38, but I want to stop here in this section, this chunk here for a moment, the Via Della Rosa here. 
Luke does not record Jesus' scourging, but it occurs between verses 25 and 26, where we left off in 25. We go right here to the, to the Via Della Rosa, where Jesus is carrying his cross. In this time, Pilate has come out, and Jesus is marred beyond any man, uh, Isaiah prophesied, to the point where he has to say, behold the man, he doesn't look like a person anymore. He said, behold your king. They said, we have no king but Caesar. And so he turns them over to the soldiers. They lay the cross on him. And now he's got to carry it down that Via Della Rosa to the cross. Now the Romans made the condemned carry their cross to their execution site so that everyone would see what would happen to those who challenged Rome's authority. A soldier would go in front of the condemned holding a placard listing the crimes they had committed. Jesus' crimes, he's the king of the Jews. So soldier carried that placard, the king of the Jews, and Jesus had to come behind on the way to the execution site. However, Jesus is a little unique in that he spent an entire evening being tortured, an entire night being tortured by the Jews who held him in captivity. And then he was scourged by Pilate uh, and the soldiers mercilessly because he had nothing to confess. So Jesus needed assistance with his cross. So it says they laid hold upon. It means to impress into service. One of the reasons we went to war with England in 1812, the second war with England, was because their ships, their soldier ships, their navy was taking our merchant ships and impressing our merchantmen, our citizens as soldiers. And so we went to war with them in 1812. They started it, but we finished it. The story, though, here is that that idea is the same thing going on here. The Roman soldiers, they could impress anyone into service. They would call it your duty to the Roman government. And so they impressed this guy Simon, a Cyrenian, who had come out of the countryside there for Passover, that he would bear the cross after Jesus. Cyrene is a city in the northern coast of modern-day Libya, so there in North Africa. Simon may have come from there, which means this would have been a once-in-a-lifetime trip, if that's the case, to Jerusalem, or he could have just been someone who lived in the countryside and he was part of the Cyrenian synagogue, we learn in, in Jerusalem. We learned in the book of Acts that that's what Stephen got in trouble with, was the Cyrenian synagogue there. So it's possible he was a part of that. Either way, though, he's not from Jerusalem. He's traveling to Passover thinking this is a special time, a special celebration, and this turns out totally different than he expected. He's carrying a criminal's cross to an execution site. We know from the rest of Scripture that this experience changed his life forever because his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, are mentioned as serving the Lord, being faithful to the Lord. There's a couple times where he is indirectly referenced in Scripture. This experience, I'm sure, had a big impact on why he came to Christ, and it just goes to show you that you don't always know exactly what God's going to do when you set up to go somewhere. And don't be surprised if the Lord does something unique at times. Now, Simon, unfortunately, the way they depicted that he carried the cross, he did not carry Jesus' cross for him. It says he carried it after him, which means he carried the back end of the cross. Romans did not show mercy, and so they did not alleviate Jesus from carrying his cross. They would not do that. They just needed to get to the site, and Jesus was struggling, and so they had this guy help Jesus carry it there. In verse 27, as they're on the Via Della Rosa, it says there followed him a great company of people and of women, who also bewailed and lamented him. 
The word there, company of people, means a large crowd of the commoners, a large crowd of the common people. Remember, the religious leaders are the ones who arrested Jesus. They were the ones who had the problem with Jesus. The trial was overnight. It was illegal. No one of the common people were present for that. But by this time, remember, they went to Pilate first thing in the morning. So by this time now, news has gotten out. Those who were loyal to Jesus, or at least sympathetic to him, they could not overrule Pilate's judgment. It was over. And so they came to mourn this great loss. Now, this group that are mourning the loss of Jesus included women. Now, this would be a very rare thing to see women going to a crucifixion site in those days. But it was not a rare thing to see lots of women around Jesus. Jesus ministered to anyone and everyone who had a need. And Jesus even had women on his ministry team. So for a group who was treated very poorly in in that culture... The loss of Jesus was huge. It wasn't like they just go, well, I'll go listen to Rabbi Bob teach now. I'll go listen to Rabbi Fred teach now. There was none of that. There were no options for that. Imagine if our church today was was a synagogue back then. All you ladies who are sitting up here, we'd have a, a wall right here, and then you would have to be on the other side of the wall. It wasn't even like it was just like in in the back. You'd have to be on the other side of the wall. You couldn't ask questions. You couldn't do any of those things. So for Jesus, who taught everyone, ministered to everyone, had women on his ministry team, this was was something that they they could not be replaced anywhere else. This was a huge loss for a greatly marginalized people group in that culture. And so they're carrying on, they're weeping and wailing. But what's interesting is in verse 28, Jesus notices their mourning and he has an interesting word for them. It says, but Jesus turning unto them said, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. You must not carry on like this for me. Carry, but weep for yourselves. The word but there implies the validity of something. They're weeping, but for an opposite reason. He says, it's okay to mourn and carry on. This is a bad day, but don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Why? Because behold, which means I need to pay attention to this because this is a crazy idea. The days are coming in the which they, the culture, will say, blessed are the barren, those who can't have kids, or the wombs that never bear, those who didn't have kids, and those who never nurse children. In future days, the cultural view is going to change. Back then, a woman would be called cursed if this was their condition, if they were barren or they couldn't have children or they'd never nursed a child, they would be considered cursed because that's where a woman got her glory from. They perceived that everything was about having children. If you didn't have a child, God had cursed you somehow. It's funny, that's not a correct view, but we have the opposite incorrect view today that womanhood is about all sorts of other things that have nothing to do with children half the time. Well, I'm gonna get in trouble. Can I just say that If you're letting the culture define who you are or who you need to be, whichever time period you're in, that pressure is going to make you and and, and make you want to be something God didn't intend you to be. That's all I'll say on that, right? There is great meaning in motherhood. There is great value in family and investing into those things. And and when you get to heaven, God's not going to ask you how successful you were at your job, male or female, you'll have a great responsibility with what you did with the children he gave to you. 
Me and Bev always had the viewpoint. We said, Lord, we want as many as you want us to have and we want to invest our life there. Most of our decisions that we've made in our lives have been because we wanted to invest there. Because the reality is, it doesn't matter how good of a pastor I am, if I can't disciple my own kids, then I'm not, it's not worth anything. Well, all done. But it was the opposite view back then, where family was the, the ultimate thing. So what in the world would happen in the future to change a culture that was that way to the opposite way? To have the viewpoint that, oh, you don't have any kids? Good, that's great. Or you can't have kids? Good for you. What would change? Well, verse 30. For then, in these future days, when they'll say these things, then shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. In other words, all sorts of outlooks on life will change in this future time because of the horrors of that time. People will wish for death or to be hidden from death's cause instead of celebrating life like birth and children and things like that. They'll be celebrating death. They'll be celebrating you know, the idea of being escaping from death. That'll be what will be on, on people's priority list. What's Jesus talking about? Verse 31. For if they do these things, the things that are being done to him right now, in a green tree, the word there, green tree, it means with moist wood, wood that's hard to burn. Frequently, uh, we'll go, we have a fireplace at our house, and so I have to usually go and get firewood, because if you go out into the backyard of a Florida home and you expect to find some burnable wood, good luck. It's just too humid, it's too moist, it just doesn't work well. You've got to, we took wood that we got from the backyard, we brought it in, and, and we had it out of, the, out of the rain, undercover, everything, you name it, and like two months later, it still wouldn't burn. And so this idea of a moist tree, it's that type of wood, wood that's not good for burning. If they would do these things in a day when it's hard to burn wood, then what do they do in the day when a fire is just ready to poof at any moment? It's interesting, in Acts 10.38, when Peter was preaching the gospel to Cornelius, he talked about this awesome time with Jesus in their midst. He said how God, this time when Jesus was here, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. I mean, think about it for a moment. I mean, here's Jesus. What does Jesus do when he comes onto the scene? He teaches people God's word. He heals the sick. He helps those who are hurting. He rescues the oppressed. He loves people who are hard to love. I mean, all the things that Jesus did were awesome. And they did this to him? Talk about a tree that's hard, branches hard, wood that's hard to burn. But here they are putting him on the cross. So, God, who in his mercy and grace came to dwell with his people, taught them the truth, healed their sick, and served them. If the religious leaders would rebel against God under those circumstances, what decisions would they make when Jesus isn't here? And this prophecy that Jesus gives is 100% correct. While Rome's destruction of Jerusalem just 40 years later was God's judgment on Israel for rejecting their Messiah, When you read the story of how it came about, it was their own leadership that brought it about by their prideful decision to rebel against Rome. They came up with the brilliant idea in the 60s. 60s are times for revolutions, apparently. (laughs) They came up with the idea in the 60s of the first century. They said, we can do this. We can cast off the greatest empire the earth has ever known. You know, it's interesting. If you go to Israel today, frequently you'll see Orthodox Jews protesting 
And what they're protesting is the nation of Israel, which was weird to me the first time I heard that. I thought, why would they do that? They're the ones who are most Jewish, right? Why wouldn't they want a nation again? Here's why. They believe that it's arrogance on their part to set up a nation on their own. Maybe that's what they did with Rome back then. It's what got them in trouble for 2,000 years. Only their Messiah can come back and do that. That's not biblical because the Lord says they will come back in Ezekiel's prophecy in unbelief. So they're wrong. But you can see that they're still smarting from 2,000 years ago what their leaders did to them. When you read the account of Josephus, Titus was having a wonder of a time breaking through the walls that were at Jerusalem. He could not take the city. But guess what happened? Not only did these religious leaders make the foolish decision to rebel against Rome, but then they started fighting with each other inside because they thought themselves invincible. These men who did this in a green tree, when Jesus was right in front of them, made this poor decision? Huh, what will they do when I'm gone? Well, they'll bring about their own destruction is what they'll do. Over a million Jews died in Titus' assault. The rest were enslaved and dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. That's why attitudes would change toward life and motherhood because living during that time as a Jew was awful. It was awful. You don't have kids? Good. You can't bring them into a world of slavery again. You don't have kids? Good. You won't have to watch them die of starvation because you have nothing to feed them during the siege. But what blows me away most about what Jesus says here is not the prophecy. It's that even after all the things they've done to him, Jesus still has compassion on his people to warn them about what's coming. Still concerned for their well-being instead of his own. Aren't you glad you serve a God who loves so selflessly? I serve him. Now verse 32 mentions that there were also two other male factors, two other criminals with Jesus led with him to be put to death. So when you see the Via Della Rosa with Jesus walking on it, you should never see him alone. He's got two other guys coming right behind him, okay? And thus the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 9 and verse 12 is also fulfilled here. Isaiah 53, 9, that he made his grave with the wicked. Isaiah 53, 12 says that he was numbered with the transgressors. So both of those prophecies are fulfilled in these two other criminals being led with Jesus to the cross. Well, they come down the Via Della Rosa and then they eventually make it, verse 33, to Calvary. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the male factors, one on the right hand, the other on his left. And then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding. And the rulers also with him derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers... They also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save yourself. For a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. We leave the Via Della Rosa and we come to Calvary. The word Calvary, it means skull. It's the word crania, cranium in the Greek. It's the word Golgotha in the Hebrew, which is why you may have heard it called Golgotha. It's the word Calvaria in Latin. That's the word for skull or cranium in Latin. Uh, that's where we get our English word cranium from, uh, that we describe our skull. So welcome to Skull Chapel of Orlando, everyone. <laughs> People ask me why we're going with a the dark theme on the stage. We wanted to have a th- stage that was a little bit more in line with our theme. We're going to put skulls all on the back there. And- <laughs> Welcome to Golgotha Chapel. 
It was called the place of the skull because the rocks behind the crucifixion site look like a skull. It got two eyes, the nose, and it looks like a skull. And if you go to Israel with us, we go to Golgotha and you can see it. Now, up to the place where the, the kind of the nose is now, the nose is broken off quite a bit since then, and then the sand just from time has gone up. Uh, so you don't actually, you can't actually look at where the place where Jesus was crucified. I know you see a lot of pictures, and kids draw pictures of this big bumpy hill, and there's a cross on top with the sun shining behind it. And oh, you may even, you remember the old hymn, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, unbiblical. People tell us, they come, sometimes they come to me and they go, I, by the way, I love hymns. I grew up on hymns and love hymns, love them all. Love the old rugged cross. I don't care that it's in the book. I love the song and I'm going to sing it because it's a good song. But I, these new songs today, you know, sometimes they just don't get it right. Yeah, they don't get half the hymns right either. Sorry. Don't mean to step on toes. But you look at some of the lines in there and they're not right either. Or they use some artistic license as well. That's fine. You know why that happens? Because they're written by the same people who write songs today. Imperfect people. It's not like there were some wonder years back in the 1700s and John Wesley shined everywhere he walked and he never ever sinned. And his brother, it's like he walked around and shined everywhere he walked. That's, he never ever wrote a bad lyric before. Christians singing songs about God being reckless. God's not reckless. No, of course God isn't reckless. But when we examine the fact that Christ would put himself in harm's way and that the father would be okay with his son doing that, if you and I were to do that, it would sound kind of reckless, wouldn't it? So there's some artistic license there, okay? So relax. It's okay, all right? I don't like the word either, all right? Every time I sing it, I'm like, ah, I hate the word reckless in that song. Because it doesn't convey the same thing in our language that maybe it did in the original word. There isn't a word for wreck. It means to place yourself in harm's way for someone else. We don't use it that way anymore, though. We make it to someone who's just, you know, ah, like it was this unthoughtful thing that here comes Jesus, you know, flying in. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to die for everybody. I get it. I don't like the word either. I read, I look at half the lyrics today and I'm like, why do you say it that way? I, and I'm super picky about all this stuff. We sing that song, the, the, the resurrected king is resurrecting me. No, he's not. He already resurrected me. What do you mean is resurrecting me? I, the same thing, reckless love. All these things you do, you give yourself away. No, he doesn't give himself away. We're not Catholic. He doesn't keep giving himself away over and over and over again. He gave himself away. It's done. It's finished. Need some more toes to step on. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) The cross wasn't on a hill. (laughs) There was reason. It was on the road in front of the place of the skull. Or by the roadside that was there on, on the flat ground. Because... The Romans always crucified by the roadside so that people would walk by and they would take notice. And so don't do what that guy did because this will happen to you. Always, always on the roadsides. Galilee was lined, they say, the roads were lined with crosses because that was where a lot of the rebellions took place. Now, this is the same place where Jeremiah composed the book of Lamentations. His mourning dirge as he watched the lines of Jewish slaves being taken to Babylon after Jerusalem's destruction, they were on that road. 
And so the Via Della Rosa came all the way down there to that spot where then they crucified him right there next to the place of the skull. And the male factors, the one on the right hand and the other on the left hand side, which means that Jesus was in the middle. It means that Jesus occupied the spot that was supposed to be for Barabbas, their leader. He was the one who led the insurrection. He had killed someone in the insurrection, but he had been let go because the Jews asked for him instead of Jesus. And so here the sinless son of God is crucified between two insurrectionists with the title king of the Jews up there, as their leader would have been. I find that interesting that the sinless son of God the Father took the place of another Barabbas, Bar, son, Abbas of the Father. Barabbas is the son of the father, the person who deserved to die for his rebellion, who deserved to be in that middle spot. Barabbas is a fitting name for the one who was spared because we are all rebellious sons of the father. We are all rebellious sons of the father. So Jesus takes the slot that the rest of us deserve to be in. In Luke 3.38, it's interesting, Luke uses a, a phrase here, where he mentions through the genealogy of Jesus, he goes backwards, Matthew goes forwards. But he starts with Jesus and he works his way all the way back to Adam. And in 338 it says, Canaan, who was the son of Enosh, who was the son of Seth, who was the son of Adam, who was the son of God, the son of the father, who was Bar-Abbas. Bar-Abbas, he was spared. We were spared. All of us, sons and daughters of God spared. Jesus took our place the one we deserve to be in. My kids, all of them have eventually come to me at some point and said, I just don't think it's fair. You know what, Adam, Adam sinned and now we're all messed up. And I have to ask them at that point in time, I say, so have you made any better decisions than Adam has? Or have you made similar decisions? We're all the rebellious sons of God in that sense. And Jesus took our place, Thankfully. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.